Our Old Testament lesson this morning is Psalm 133, a short little psalm, only three verses, and it is uh, one of the songs of ascents that uh, people would sing as they approached Jerusalem on their various um, pilgrimages to Jerusalem, times, festival times uh, throughout the year. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. Lord, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. Lord, we ask that you would help us this morning to hear your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear it, to understand it, to apply it that we might be those who live it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 133, a song of ascents of David. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the beard, poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Turning then to our New Testament reading, Matthew 13, verses 47 through 52. As Jesus is telling his various parables of what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he says, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said to them, therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had a choice to make. And uh, we typically think that the choice that they have to make is, do we eat this fruit or do we not eat this fruit? Right? That's the choice they're making. And that's actually only a piece of the choice they're making. And when we make that piece the whole thing, we actually miss what's really going on. In fact, that's what they were uh, pretending was the whole of the choice, right? They look at the situation, there's this fruit, and they're like, hey, it looks good to us. We don't see why we shouldn't have it. Let's just go for it, right? What could possibly go wrong? And so they act like the choice they're making is, do we eat the fruit or do we not eat the fruit? Well, let's go, you know, pros and cons. Looks good to us. Good for wisdom and uh, maybe even make us like God. Let's, let's go for it. But the decision really isn't about do we eat the fruit or not. The decision is much bigger than that. The real question is, are we going to trust God or not in this moment? Because God had already said, do not eat this fruit. And so by making the decision about whether or not they're eating the fruit, they're really making a much bigger decision of do we trust God or do we not? 
And they answered that. Said so we don't. And when we look at it this way, it makes sense that when, you know, if we think it's just about uh, eating the fruit or not eating the fruit, and we try to apply that to ourselves, we go, all right, next time I'm faced with fruit, I just won't eat it. There we go. This makes everything very simple, especially if I don't like fruit. And then we're, we're good to go. But that's not what it's about. Instead, it's about do I trust God in this moment or not? And that is something that does apply to all of us every day. And the question is, how do we make decisions as Christians now when that's the question we're asking? Do we trust God in this or not? And so we have to understand how it is that we apply the gospel to our lives today in, uh, in every decision that we're making. That's really what we're going to be looking at this morning. We're in the middle of this series on these tiny books in the New Testament that pack a powerful punch. And uh, we are in the second half of Philemon this morning. Last week, we looked at and kind of set up the story. We're going to read the whole thing, but I want you to hear it again as to what's going on in the story uh, because we are getting... We're reading a letter, and if you don't understand what the context of the letter is, it gets kind of confusing. So here's what's going on. Is there's a man named Philemon who owns a slave named Onesimus. Now, uh, whatever kind of cultural baggage we have in the United States with slavery, you kind of have to put that aside. This is kind of a different thing, although still dehumanizing in its own way. But there was slavery as a part of that culture, uh, and so Philemon owns Onesimus. Onesimus, for some reason, has run off. He has run off and uh, most likely has gone uh, about 120 miles away or so up to um, Ephesus, where Paul is in prison. I say most likely, we don't know for sure. He could be in Rome in prison at this point. We don't know for sure. But somehow, uh, he runs into Paul. Either on accident, or either on purpose because he meant to, he was looking for Paul, or on accident because God had intended for them to meet. <laughs> One way or another, Onesimus, the slave, runs into Paul in prison, and uh, through Paul's ministry, Onesimus himself actually becomes a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ, who has had a whole change of life, change of perspective on the world, and now the question for Paul is, what does he do? And what he does is he writes a letter back to Philemon and sends Onesimus back to him with this letter. And if you are Onesimus and you're taking this letter back, you know what penalties are for running off, and you're walking right back to the, to the the person who kind of has your fate in their hands. And you're thinking, Paul, this better be a good letter. <laughs> and it is. Here's how it reads. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. 
I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more. Prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Oh, what a letter. This is the letter that, um, that Onesimus takes back with him and gives to Philemon. What is the response? We don't know. But uh, it is still very instructive for us. And so here's where we're going to go with this. Last week we talked about how Paul opens this whole letter by reminding uh, Philemon of several things. One, he reminds him of the relationships they have one to another. He reminded them of the relationships that they have uh, in, in Christ, they have with God and Jesus. He reminds him of the history that uh, Philemon has in following Jesus. He reminds him of the mission, of what it means to continue following Jesus. And then he asks him, doesn't command him, but asks him to do something, um, and uh, something very countercultural, something that his neighbors probably would not have understood, especially if they're not Christians. And we'll see why this is what he asks later today. Um, so here's then where we pick it up for this morning. Verse 25, or not verse 25, that's at the very end. Verse 12, when he says, I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel, but I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. This is important. Paul is saying to Philemon, I am giving you the choice 
to do the right thing. I am not going to make you do what you know you ought to do. I'm just putting it before you and telling you this is the right thing. Now, are you going to do it or not? And does this sound familiar to us? This should sound familiar to us. First of all, this should sound familiar to us in the way in which we were probably raised ourselves. And then if we have children that we are raising or have raised, it probably sounds familiar there as well. It's also the same kind of pattern that we see throughout the Bible of God very often commanding people, you must do these things, and then other times giving them the choice and saying, this is the way, walk in it. But what is the distinction and the difference between forcing and asking? And I say we know this as those who grew up with parents or those who have parented. Do you let a one-year-old choose all the right things they ought to be doing? No. If you have, if you have a swimming pool, do you let your one-year-old choose whether or not they're just going to go walk around and jump in? No, you're going to make that choice for them and you are going to force them to, make the, uh, to do the right thing and you're going to keep them away. What about a 17-year-old? You going to let them make that choice? Of course, why not? And what is the difference? Maturity. One has, uh, has matured enough to be able to understand the decision they're making to be able to process what it might mean to make each of these decisions. And no, we're not going to get into the relative maturity of a 17-year-old, but you get the point. <laughs> that there is a difference, there is a distinction as people grow up, that we have, uh, and as we mature, we should have less of our decisions made for us and more opportunities to make choices on our own. And Why? It's not just because we're mature. You could still force a 17-year-old to do all these things. We don't do it because we can't force. We do it because it's good for the 17-year-old. It is good for them to have a choice and to choose what is right. It is more meaningful when somebody chooses to do the right thing than when they are doing the right thing because they are forced. I once had a conversation with someone who told me that they had never enjoyed their job more than they did after they passed the age of retirement. She said, it wasn't until I turned 65 that I really started to love my job. And so the difference was always up until then, she was doing it and felt like, well, I'm doing it because I have to. And she said, once she passed the age of retirement, she said, I now realize I could walk away at any time, but I do it because I love it. <laughs> the job hadn't changed. She was still doing the exact same job she had been doing before, but before it had felt forced. And now it felt voluntary. That's a huge difference. Huge difference. This is what Paul is saying to Philemon. I don't want to force you to act like a Christian. <laughs> I want you to choose to act like a Christian. I don't want to force you to follow Jesus. I want to let you know what it looks like to follow Jesus. To put that before you. But let the choice be yours. 
verse 15 through 19. Paul says, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention you owe me your very self. Paul is already seeing and pointing out that there may be actually some good that has come out of the bad that started this whole thing. Onesimus running away, was that the right thing for him to do? Paul's like, no, that's probably not the right thing for him to do. Does that mean that only bad stuff is going to come from it? Well, no, actually, this might turn out for good because that's the way God does things. Constantly taking things that are not good and then bringing good out of them. And when he says, perhaps the reason was he was separated from you for a little while is that you might have him back forever. Now think about this. This also is a, a pattern we see. This is one that we see most specifically in uh, Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. The disciples that were so grieved when Jesus dies on the cross and they are separated. But then, as it turns out, they are separated not forever, like they thought. They are separated for a little while in order that they might have him back forever. This is, um, this is what Paul is seeing in this particular situation. And this is what we are uh, going to see throughout this letter. This is what Paul is doing, not only in this letter, but throughout uh, the New Testament letters that he writes, throughout other New Testament letters. It's what you have, um, kind of, oh, here's a brief overview of the New Testament. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that are giving the, uh, the account of Jesus, life, uh, ministry, teachings, death, resurrection. Then you have the book of Acts, which follows this message as the Holy Spirit moves in the disciples and takes this message to the ends of the earth. And then you have a whole lot of letters. And in these letters, what we have is, in one form or another, uh, situations that are happening within the life of the church, either with individuals or with the whole church. And somebody writing a letter to address it and say, how is it that the gospel lays over on this particular situation? What is it that we do now as Christians because of who Jesus is and what he has done? What difference does it make to this situation that Jesus is the Messiah who died and was raised again to life? And so they take that and they lay it on the situation and they say, okay, here's what we do now. But that's where this is coming from. It's always going back uh, to Jesus, his identity, his crucifixion, his resurrection. And so when we see... uh, how Paul addresses this particular situation is exactly what he's doing. And he says, look, you might get him back forever now and better than you had him before because now your relationship is going to be completely different. Now your relationship is not going to be based on power dynamics of a slave owner and a slave. 
now your relationship is going to be based on the love that Jesus has for both of you and the love that you have for Jesus and the love you can have for each other. This is a whole different kind of relationship, but it's a much better relationship. And he says to Philemon, look, he is, he's dear to me. I'd love to keep him here, actually. He can work <laughs> helping me out with what I'm doing. Um, but no, I'm sending him back to you, and he's dearer to you. You know this man. And he is dearer to you both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. When he says as a fellow man, this is just a reminder to Philemon that of all people, Christians are the ones who ought to be able to love anyone because we are the ones who recognize that no matter how distorted the image might be every human being carries on them the image of god everyone and so we can love and respect everyone whether we agree with them on anything or not we can still treat them with love and respect as those who bear the image of god and he says, so you can do that with him. I know you can. You're a Christian. That's what we do. He says, but actually, it's even better than that because he is not just some other person. He actually is a believer as well. He is uh, a part of the same family that I have been adopted into, that you have been adopted into. Now he has been adopted into. And we all have the same heavenly father. We are brothers together. And so you can, uh, you can love him in that way. And then he goes one further. He says, just in case you might be having you know, trouble understanding, well, what does that look like then when I put this into practice with this particular guy who all my neighbors are saying ought to get a, you know, a good whipping at the very least. <laughs> Paul says, here's how you do it. When you look at him, I want you to think of me. So if I were coming to your house and I were the one bringing you this letter, how would you welcome me? What kind of food would you prepare for me to eat? Where would I sleep? What kinds of conversations might we have? He says, whatever it is that you would do for me as welcoming me into your home as a brother in Christ, I want you to think about all those things and do them for Onesimus. This is absolutely countercultural. <laughs> there is no way that any slave owner is like, yes, I will just, you know, welcome my runaway slave as I would welcome one of my best friends. And Paul's saying, oh, that's exactly what you ought to do. And in case uh, Philemon is saying, well, Okay, maybe I'll do that, but then tomorrow he still has some, you know, stuff coming due for him, punishment-wise, so that he will learn you don't get to do things like that. Everybody else will learn you don't get to, and Paul says, no, I get it. I get it. He's, he's done you wrong. And I don't want you to hold it against him. In fact, if there's anything that he needs to pay back, charge it to me. I'll be the one that pays it back. If you need to give him a beating, give it to me. If he needs to pay back money, send me a bill. If Whatever it is, 
Why would Paul do that? Does that make any sense? Not for most of the world. But for somebody who has had his life completely turned upside down by Jesus Christ, it absolutely makes sense. Paul is now putting into his own life what has happened for himself. Where Jesus has said, I will take the punishment that you deserve, Paul, so that you can have the life that I have earned. And now Paul takes that and he runs with it. And in this life of Onesimus, this runaway slave, he says, I will take the punishment that you deserve so that you can have the life that I have earned. Does that make sense? What Paul is doing is taking the message of the gospel and just laying it on top of this particular situation and saying, this is what Jesus has done for me, therefore this is what I'm going to do for others. So he tells him, when you look at him, think of me. This is what we're supposed to do with each other. When we look at each other, when we look at our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, when we look at people who have been made in the image of God, who are we supposed to think of? We're supposed to think of Jesus, right? And as much as you do uh, for the least of these, you did it for me. Because every person that you see and you're trying to figure out how am I supposed to treat them, he says, treat them like you would treat me. And Paul is taking that same thing and taking that same approach in how he is now sacrificially laying down his own life for the good of someone who doesn't deserve it. That's what Christians do. Well, that's the big ask. And then he says to Philemon a couple more things. One, Yes, this is a voluntary thing, but he says in verses 20 and 21, basically, I'm confident you're going to do the right thing. And not because of all the arm twisting I'm doing, though I'm doing a fair bit of it. I'm confident you're going to do the right thing because I know you. I know that you have been, you are someone who has had his life changed by the grace of Jesus Christ. And you are honestly seeking to follow Jesus in everything you do. I've seen this in your relationships with other people. I have seen this in the ways that it has worked out that you have refreshed many hearts in Christ. If you do this, that will be just one more way that you're refreshing somebody's heart. It'll be mine this time. But when he says in verse 21, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. That doesn't mean I know you're going to obey me. He's saying, I know you're somebody who's eager to obey Christ. And you know this is what he would ask. Therefore, I don't have to be nervous about this and be sitting here wringing my hands going, what is Philemon going to do when he gets his letter? It's like, I know Philemon. He wants to do what Jesus wants him to do. He wants to be the kind of person who has a Jesus-shaped life. So all I have to do is point it out to him. And he will be eager and willing. And that's where he says, I know you're going to do even more than I ask. Because you're going to take what I've put out there and you're going to run with it even farther. And then he says, one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. 
it's like I will go ahead and point out, I am planning to come. So this is not going to be our final conversation about this. When I come for a visit, we can talk about it as far as which route you decided to go on this. I hope it's a pleasant conversation. But he says, you know, I know that you want me to be restored. I know you've been praying for me to be released from prison. And when I get released, I'll be able to come back and see you. This is what Jesus says to us as well. As we enter this season of Advent and we are preparing for the coming of Jesus, Advent means coming. We are preparing for not only celebration of Christmas, we are preparing for the days, for the day when Jesus comes again. It's as though he has given us this line from this letter and said, I hope to be restored to you. <laughs> Prepare a guest room for me. That doesn't mean go clean out the guest room at your house and make sure the bed is made and the floors are vacuumed. It says, let every heart prepare him room. That when he comes, that the conversation will be pleasant. As we have been those who have made tons of mistakes along the way, but who have genuinely been trying to follow in his way. To live Jesus-shaped lives that sacrificially lay down our lives for the good of others. And then two more things in the final three verses. Paul mentions Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greeting, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demons, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Just as a reminder that this is not just about Philemon and Onesimus any more than uh, the issue in the Garden of Eden was just about Eve and the apple. It's much bigger than that. We like to shrink down everything that we're doing and think, well, it's just about this. It's not a big deal. And what Paul is reminding him is every decision that you're making affects more than just you. This is, you are a part of a church. You are a part of a body. And so I want to remind you, in the same way he opened the letter, mentioning the people who are there with uh, Philemon, mentioning the church that meets in his house, he closes the letter, reminding him of other believers, fellow prisoners, fellow workers. Because none of us is in this alone. We do this together. And then... Verse 25, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is really what the whole thing's been about. Is Paul reminding Philemon as he addresses this particular situation of the grace of the Lord Jesus? And taking Philemon back to the foot of the cross and saying, this is what you have received, not because you earned it, not because you deserved it, 
but as a free gift. And so, with that in mind, live out of that. That your spirit would be a grace-filled, that you would be overflowing with grace for those around you because of what you received in Jesus. Jesus tells a parable about a, a king who forgives one of his servants, and then that servant goes out and is unwilling to forgive, and everybody is outraged, and rightfully so. Because the one who was forgiven so much, it wasn't just about the amount, although that is significant, it was about the kingdom and the values of the king. And he says, this is the way that this kingdom operates. It is on forgiveness. It is grace. And then when that man turns around and goes out and refuses to operate this way, the king hauls him back in and says, fine, we'll do it your way. If you want to make sure that guy gets justice, then you will get justice. My way is different. My way is better. (laughs) Paul is reminding Philemon, we belong to a kingdom where the values of the kingdom are grace and love. We have a ministry of reconciliation, as he says in 2 Corinthians, where relationships are restored. This is the hope that I have in uh, coming back to you from prison. This is the hope I have for you and Onesimus. Because these are the values of the king. And this is what it looks like for the gospel to lay over this particular situation in your life. So, as we go from here, um, and kind of leave this letter behind, let's not leave this letter behind. But remember what it looks like in this particular situation to take the message of the gospel and lay it over this situation so that people can make the right choice in how they follow Jesus in every decision they're making. And then as we face choices today and tomorrow and through this week and through this whole season, that we would keep on asking this question, not minimizing and say, ah, it doesn't make much, much of a difference, but saying, okay, in this situation... What difference does it make of who Jesus is, of him being the Messiah who has died for me, for those I know, for those I don't know, and who has been raised to life again as Lord of this kingdom of heaven? What difference does that make And then how do I walk forward in this decision in a way that honors the values of his kingdom and in a way that this decision ends up looking like Jesus? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. Lord, we do thank you for the good news of the gospel. Help us to remember that it is good news. It is good news for us who have received it, and it is good news 
for others who have uh, maybe not received it yet. But Lord, we pray that you would help us in the ways in which we um, the ways in which we do everything, the ways in which we go about um, our work, the ways in which we go about our play, the ways in which we uh, deal with people in person and by phone and by text and by email and in our online interactions or the decisions we make would be Jesus-shaped. Knowing that he is the way and the truth and the life. God, that his way would be our way. That his truth would be our truth. That his life would be our life. And Lord, I pray that you would help us as we face uh, the countercultural ways that this leads us to sacrifice our own ways, to lay down our own lives for the good of others. Remind us of the grace. Remind us of your love and empower us by your spirit to follow you where you lead. This we pray in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.